I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Welcome to the Dynamics 365 Practice Show. In this episode, we explore dynamics and business development with Nick Spalita. Nick joined Parada Group after more than 15 years of experience in sales, consulting, and leadership roles. Nick is a complex problem solver and enjoys helping customers find pragmatic solutions to achieve success. Prior to that, Nick was part of the CRM Practice Leadership Team at Hitachi Solutions and has also worked with Sonoma Partners. To review the show notes for this episode, please go to nz365guide.com forward slash 70. Now, let's have a chat with Nick. Welcome to the MVP Show. I'm here with Nick. Nick, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, Mark. My name is Nick Spolita. I work for a Microsoft partner called the Parita Group that focuses on the intersection of AI and business applications. We help our clients drive a better customer employee experience with Microsoft and open source technologies. Okay, so tell me, where are you from? Tell me a bit about your family background, that type of thing, and how you got to this point in your career. Yeah, sure, certainly. So I live about 10 minutes away from where I grew up here in Kansas City. So lots of friends and family in the area, pretty much eating and drinking with them is probably my my favorite pastime. I've also lived in a couple other cities and been in sales and consulting my entire career. So I've visited a lot of places and on way too many plane rides. So I'm also fortunate to have uh, a lot of friends kind of scattered all over the world. You know, pretty much outside of work, most of my time is spent hanging out with my wife and two children. I also enjoy pretty much anything outdoors, hiking, skiing, fishing, hunting, climbing. I used to read a lot, Mark. Now that's mostly books on tape because I don't have enough time for, for just that. And then uh, as far as the dynamics career and, and kind of what got me started there, uh, you know, I, I've been I've been really lucky, Mark. Uh, you know, I started out in the Microsoft channel almost a decade ago. I co-founded a, a SharePoint and custom application development company when I moved back to Kansas City. During that time, I got a chance to work with Microsoft Dynamics 3.0 on a large government project we were doing some subcontracting work for that was also, also involved SharePoint. And that was really my first introduction to dynamics and i hated it uh, i really didn't <laughs> i really didn't like 3.0 at all yeah it was a rough product back then yeah yeah i mean you know how long have you been working with dynamics mark i mean were you one of the brave souls that started prior to 3.0 1.2 oh yeah you deserve a medal i was a customer of it i implemented it as a customer oh wow you were you were brave mm-hmm so, so after after that venture, I ended up joining a good company called Sonoma Partners. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I know them very well, yeah. Great people. They had written the Microsoft 4.0 press books and, and were writing the ones for the upcoming 2011 release. That was you know, a, a really big transition time for Microsoft and, and just the Dynamics CRM platform as a whole. It was also kind of Microsoft's first attempt at a cloud-based business application. So, so <laughs> interesting times to say the least. And and a lot of fun. Shortly after that, I got another opportunity to work with some more great people at Hitachi. 
to help them build a CRM practice and join their leadership team. We grew really quickly there, both organically and, and through some acquisitions. Uh, we won a, quite a few few different awards and got to do a lot of cool things for a lot of great customers. So, I mean, like I said, Mark, I mean, I've, I've been really blessed to have gotten to work with and for some, some really talented people in, in our Dynamics channel. So tell us a bit about Prada Group. How is how's that been set up? I see that your your business partner is the wonderfully talented singer songwriter architect extraordinaire MVP Sheila Shapari. So tell us about how you guys kind of formed this business and and what's the plans? Yeah, so uh, I mean, first and foremost, you know, you're absolutely spot on about Sheila. She's she's an amazing talent, especially when it comes down to to Microsoft Dynamics CRM and. And, you know, obviously she has other talents in terms of singing and songwriting and things of that nature. But for me, this isn't necessarily my first time kind of with the entrepreneurship thing, if you will. You know, I I really just kind of enjoy helping, you know, a team and a company grow quickly. And when you start it, you know, with a small group of people or a few folks, you have an opportunity to move a lot faster. You can experiment. You can find a better way of doing things a lot easier than you can you know, working, you know, with a larger existing business. It's also a really challenging thing to do, Mark. You know, I think you've done it before too. So, I mean, it just helps you grow faster as a person. And then the other reason why why I did it is just I'm, I'm really bullish right now on, on where Microsoft is heading overall, right? And really just looking to kind of hook our little trailer up to, to that to see where it takes everyone. And, and then also at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of change and consolidation in the partner channel. And that's created a, a lot of different opportunities for different people. And I want to take advantage of that. Yeah, nice, nice. So, you know, uh, one of the themes of the show is really around dynamics and business development. So tell me, you know, you've started a, a new business, new company. And of course, the big thing is landing your clients and also, you know, building your client mix over the next two to five years be, you know, like if you like to start with, you can, you've got all your old connections, but at some point you've got to start, you know, developing brand new business because all your relationships kind of get exhausted. And if you like, they've transferred over to you or whatever project wise, how do you go about, you know, kind of getting those sales slash marketing rhythms in place? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it all starts with just market segmentation and focus. I think, you know, in my experience, when I when I start looking at any kind of marketing sales and, or, or service related problem to go solve it, it always kind of starts with that segmentation. And, and what I mean by that is, is you need to have that focus. I mean, even the larger Microsoft Dynamics partners like HCL, Avanade, Hitachi have a hard time being all things to all people, right? So it's kind of ignorant, you know, to, to think you can do everything well for your customers, even if you have all the resources that like maybe a big shop has. Right. So so I think that's the, the, the first thing that you got to go do is you have to start by defining what your ideal customer or prospect looks like. And in, in our world, that usually boils down to kind of the following data points, markets, it's industry. Right. So I also think that you need to go as deep as possible. It's it's just not sufficient anymore to say you're a FinServe focused partner. That just simply doesn't cut it. Verticals such as sales, customer service, or field service and, and growing kind of a level of expertise there is another way to focus. 
You can certainly do it based on, on geography, right? So, I mean, if you're from Kansas City, then you're probably not going to be a good fit for someone that wants to implement D365 in Germany, German language, right? Size is also, you know, a, a good way of kind of carving it up. Usually that's defined by uh, employees or revenue. And then, you know, I would say technology profiles is, is another side of it too. You know, are they a Microsoft shop or do they use Google Apps? I mean, I don't know about you, Mark, but I haven't implemented D365 with a lot of customers that are also using Google Apps. No, none. Okay, so you had their technology, size, geography, you, you covered verticals, and then do you specialize in, if you like, one of the first party apps like field service, customer services, sales, and industry? So that's kind of like, that's how you define your ideal customer profile. Is that right? Yeah. So I would say you got to look at those things. Those are the, those are the attributes, right? So, you know, if, if you're looking at, you know, specializing in, you know, capital markets, you know, investment banking, you know, and, and more specifically the sales side of that, right. And then you want to do that in, in kind of the Midwest and, and you want to do that for, you know, companies that, you know, are in between 250 million and a and you know let's call it 750 billion and then there's an employee bracket to that too and then there's a technology profile you can start using all of those various attributes to go find customers i, w- I would also say you got to bring it you know even a level down from that right so i mean we're talking about attributes to accounts and we you know we don't sell to companies we sell to people so you you've also got to kind of drill down into the various different buying personas right so you know are you 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 directing your message towards it leadership or maybe that that customer or contact center leader right or the vp of sales you know sales operations all of those folks and then then basically once you kind of have your focus and your message and and you've aligned your value propositions to that, then then you need to really start kind of putting that message through all of the various channels that those those buying personas, if you will, or those buying influences, you know, might be able to find you or, or, or find information about you on. Okay, so let's talk about findability, you know, on those channels. What, like, what have you found is the most effective and, and maybe even the second most effective when it comes to people being able to find you and your products and service and things like that? Yeah, good question. I would say, you know, LinkedIn is, is, is a good way. Uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that are out there kind of doing that. But, uh, you know, I would say primarily just putting good content out, right? You know, making sure that, that you're – you're spending some time providing value to these these buyer personas or these buying influences. They're just maybe educating them or, or giving them some information that they might not have had in, unless they kind of look through some of your content, that type of stuff. I think that starts to build your credibility and also kind of uh, you know builds a little bit of uh, goodwill, if you will, with these folks. And then you know that awareness gets created. So when you do pick up the phone and call or you run into them at an event or, or something of that nature, then there's a little bit of familiarity. And, and I think that's the key, right? You know, I mean, people keep saying cold calling is dead and, and really it's because there's not a lot of familiarity there, right? I mean, if I call Mark up, you know, with, with Mark never even, you know, have heard my name or my company's name, it's I'm not going to get very far. But if I call Mark and Mark recognizes, you know, that, hey, you know, I downloaded some information that was helpful to me or you know, I went to a blog to go solve a problem and it was a Pareto group or something like that, then, then, then that familiarity helps quite a bit. Yeah, 
Yeah. So you kind of, rather than but cold calling, they're a well-warmed-up call. You've had a few touch points with them before you're ever kind of maybe engaging with them over the phone. Yeah, you have to have some some form of familiarity. And, and like you mentioned, too, I mean, you know, those of us that have been been around for some time, we've, we've got a strong network and a lot of customers that we work with. But yeah, that familiarity is key. Yeah. So do you go after business pretty much within your own geo or do you kind of work anywhere across the US and in, in how you if, you, if you like, based on the target customer type you go after? Yeah, anywhere in the U.S. So, uh, you know, I'm based in Kansas City and Sheila's based in, in Denver and, and, you know, our consultants are a little bit scattered, a little bit everywhere, if you will. But so are our customers. So, you know, our customers are in New York, Chicago, um, you know, San Francisco, Texas. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think for us, it, it's it's really got to be kind of a U.S. focus because, you know, our focus is, is it's kind of pretty laser sharp on, on those verticals too. So yeah, we don't, we'd love to have more business in our backyard, less travel, right. But, but it's really U S focused. Yeah. So how did you niche down and, and choose those? Like I, I noticed that you're in augmented intelligence and its relationship to automation with D365 kind of what kind of set you on the, the niche that you're operating in? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, artificial intelligence, right, is, as most people call it, is, is a, you know, a, a huge thing, right? It's getting a, you know, a lot of traction from a buzzword perspective. For us, you know, we like to think of it as, as kind of augmented intelligence. And, and really kind of what we're talking about there is that, you know, with machine learning and, and some of the cognitive services that Microsoft's providing, in addition to just kind of good old fashioned analytics, you know, we're able to do things and provide insights to the right people at the right time in a way that we haven't had or haven't been able to before, right? And then also, you know, I think really our belief is what's much more important than these, these applications that we're all implementing is, is the data that they hold, right? That's the value. That's that's where the value is. So so that's kind of really our focus is, is bringing kind of the analytics and, and kind of what we call augmented intelligence together with these business applications and finding that intersection. Nice, nice. So what's the toughest thing about starting a new practice like this? Oh, wow. I think patience. You know, I think that's that's the key. It takes it takes time. It really takes time to, to build a great, solid practice. So I, I think that's that's probably the key is just having some patience and, and making sure that you're continuing – to do the right thing with the right team and the right customers. It's really, really easy to get off track there, you know, in terms of, you know, when you're a young company and, and hungry to do good work and stuff like that, sometimes you'll find yourself chasing things that, you know, might not necessarily be good for you. So I think it's, I think it's just patience and, and kind of having that level of maturity to, to focus on the right things. Yeah. So, so patience is interesting because, Patience in business always has a dollar value you associated with it. So in other words, you can only be as patient as your cash flow and or, or capital. So how does that kind of affect your decision making process? You know, I would say probably a more mature company would have a lot more ability to be patient than than a potential startup, unless you're well capitalized, of course. Sure. And I mean, even, even if you are well capitalized, you still have limited resources, right? You still got to make money. 
so so I would say, you know, again, you know, absolutely you want to try to be true to who you are, even if you're not necessarily there yet. If, if that means passing on business, then that might not lead to customer success or build that reputation you want from the company. You, you just got to be mature and do that. But to your point, you know, working capital and cash, I mean, that's that's the business. That's what allows you to do more things. Right. So, you know. You really, you know, I think first and foremost, you, you really want to kind of be obsessive about kind of, a, you know, your current and, and future customers and making them successful. And then just just after that, then you figure out how to make money doing that for you and, and the team. And, and you make sure that you monitor that cash and that working capital and you, you work within your means. Yeah, nice, nice. How do you kind of prioritize what needs to be done now as opposed to, you know, what you might leave for 18 month, two year, three year type window when, you know, getting a business up and cranking? I'm maybe working capital and cash. (laughs) (laughs) No, so I I think you've got to look at this thing in, in, in milestones, right? Because, you know, based on my experience, you're solving different types of problems at, at different milestones, right? So, you know, obviously there's, there's always going to be, you know, metrics that you want to track and, and things of that nature, but, you know, getting, you know, to 2.5 million in, in revenue is a lot different than going from five to 15 and, and even a lot different than going from 15 to 50. Yeah. Again, all of those, those efforts bring different sets of challenges. So, so you, you kind of have to, you know, I think if you're, if you're looking four to five years ahead, I mean, man, the world changes so fast these days. I mean, we're, we're iterating on the platform. I mean, the platform iterates, you know, changes significantly every six months these days. So I don't, I don't know how, who could ever have a four to five year plan. Agreed, 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 agreed. But it's kind of like, oh, when I talk about prioritization, I'm talking about, you know, priorities around things like you need to get your marketing rhythms in place or you need to get your sales rhythms in place as opposed to perhaps making sure you've got the best HR system for, you know, the, the you know, getting an HR director on or something like that because you're not at that size kind of, what do you, yeah, so so kind of what is Customers and talent. Yeah, customers and talent. Yeah. That's it. That's, I mean, that's, that's the secret sauce, right? So, I mean, anything that has to do with, you know, acquiring, you know, more customers and better customers or, or the ideal customers that you're looking for. And then on the same fold, you know, any, anything that helps you, you know, acquire great talent, that's what you got to go do. Okay. Let's talk about that. Then the talent side of things, how do you attract, how do you get, find the right talent kind of what's your thinking around contractors as opposed to full FTEs? How, how does that work without getting into, if you like, the nuances of the legal side of how the U.S. employment law runs? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So one thing, so first and foremost, the contractors versus FTEs thing, right? I would start by saying contractors don't really care. So if, if you're utilizing contractors or contract people, then they better be known entities. They better be people that are, are pretty much borderline friends, Right. That, that really care about you and, and care about your customers. Because in most cases, if you're just selling work and, and just, you know, throwing, you know, contractors at it, that's never going to lead to customer success. So that's that. I think also in, in finding the right people or choosing the right people, 
you know, I, I wish it kind of worked like a fantasy football draft where you could just, you know, come <laughs> yes. and Yes, not right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, I think it kind of maybe does when you're doing kind of the, the college or offshore hiring type of thing, right? But, you know, in this business, especially with the scarcity of talent, the right people choose you, Mark. So, so you have to you have to cultivate that like you would an opportunity for a customer. You've got to build trust. You've got to show them why you're different. You've got to qualify that they're right for you right now. You know, and, and if, if you, again, if you're growing a, a, you know, a successful practice, you have to keep two pipelines, customers and talent. Wow, that's cool. That's cool. I like that. How do you measure your progress and success? Because what, what I'm meaning here is that, in a way, you don't have anybody else measuring you, so you've got to kind of put your own systems in place to to a degree hold yourself accountable how do you how do you choose those and stay true to yourself if you like yeah so uh, good question so i mean i I think you know with professional services companies you're always going to have kind of the standard set of metrics that you need to track right so you know billable utilization bookings all that good stuff you also you know going back to that working capital and 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 cash thing too i mean you're you even want to measure things like dso they sales outstanding and just making sure that that because yeah, that's the thing that that everybody gets hung up on in, in our business is, is they don't understand kind of the time right so so i think that's the big thing is, is you got to try and do your best to, to measure and manage your time effectively and then just make sure that that you have those milestones set out for your business and that you're tracking effectively to them right and, and that everything that you're doing kind of on a, on a daily activity perspective, you know, when you reflect on that, it is leading towards those milestones. And, and you know, it changes, right? It's, it's a very fluid situation. You know, I mean, things, you know, you know I, would, I would say if, if, you know, you've found yourself in a situation where, you know, like for us, for example, where, you know, we've, we've been able to get a lot of business real quick, right? Uh, so that's a good thing. So, you know, we've kind of overshot our original goals. But, uh, you know, for us, you know, that just means that, you know, maybe we set the goal too low. So you, you've got to continually adjust based on those things and just just continually to, to watch those those common metrics that, you know, everybody has to manage off of in, in a professional services business. Yeah, nice. How do you go about setting the vision for your company and and added to that, if you like, set the culture that your company is going to be known for and if you like that creates a loyalty within your staff yeah so you know creating that culture and and that that vision of what you what you want to be and what you want your you know your company to be is is pretty important so for us you know we typically you know so we operate off of you know what we call a lean business model canvas. I don't know if you're familiar with that more. And we continually update that and review that you know as, as an organization. I, I also feel that it's important to be transparent with that information to your employees, right? So I have no problem sharing that with uh, you know with our folks and, and our team in terms of what the grand plan is, and and also you know getting you know getting their buy-in and more importantly getting their feedback on it, right? I think maybe without spending you kind of the next hour walking you through all of all of kind of what we did to create that that lean business model, but you know I think really what we try to do is just again keep it simple. I mean I think that's for us at this stage it's it's just try to do our best to to keep it simple right now. It's so easy to overcomplicate this business, so it's really go get great customers, 
find great talent and parallel with that, do great work and, and repeat that over and over again. Nice, nice. Now, some good advice there. So let's just, if you like, zoom back out, not just in the business you're in, but if you like across your career and the, you know, from working at Sonoma, Hitachi and, and where you are now, how is your kind of the way you have done business or what you define as good business changed over time? That's a great question. So I've always been very customer centric, so that hasn't changed much. The way I help them has evolved with experience, of course. But I will say when I was younger, I was much more about, hey, look at me, look what I can do or what I just did. I was typically also in a role mark where, you know, I had some sort of performance based compensation. So I measured a lot of my early success by how much money I could make or winning a big logo or a huge deal. Companies also usually measured me against my peers performance. So I was very competitive. And now for me, you know, it's all about what I do with my time and the team of people I do it with. I think that's the biggest change for me. These days, I like seeing other people win, especially people that deserve it. And helping play uh, a role in, in making that happen is, is really just a lot of fun. It, it actually makes me quite happy. Nice, nice. Have you ever thought about getting into more the ISV side of business and creating products rather than being a, a system integrator, implementer? Absolutely. I think if you're a, you know, for our aspirations at, at very least, is not to necessarily be, you know, a, a gigantic, you know, global systems integrator like an Avanade or anything like that. That's that, that's not it. Really, what we want to do is, you know, start by 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 really implementing, you know, great solutions with great people for for great customers. And I think along the way, you know, if you're you're doing that the right way, then then you'll get, you know, a lot of smart, great people like the Sheilas of the world. You know, you get their their minds and their eyes on on problems that people are trying to solve, and once you solve that problem, you got to take a look at that and say, you know, hey, could could that be easily replicated for for other people like this, right? And I think that's that's typically the best way to to kind of start building products. We have kind of a, a little bit of an internal R and D list and, and some things that we're working on currently, but but yeah, that's that's the best way to do it. It's just you know, get in front of, you know, some good customers, solve some problems and, and see if you can productize that. Excellent. Excellent. No, it's interesting. I've uh, got a keen interest in the ISV space. And I believe with the changes Microsoft have made, you know, in the Power Platform and CDS for Apps, I think it's opening up a massive opportunity scape for particularly, you know, full line of business apps and vertical solutions to come to market that, um you know, could be quite transformative, not using anything that's in Dynamics, but purely built on the platform. So it's good to, it's good to see that you're kind of uh, looking at that area. Can you, can you give me a walkthrough of your top recommendations for revenue generation? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, with regards to, to the services side of the business, right, because it's different. If, if you go into, you know, once you start getting into to product, your sales motions and, and how you generate revenue is, is, is going to change or evolve. And, you know, I'd even recommend kind of separating that out as much as possible as, as your products evolve. But, you know, I think my top recommendation is really to understand how lead cash works in our business. You know, I'm always caught off guard, Mark, by a lot of people not having a good handle on this. Uh, you know, so so I, I try to break it down and simplify it into five areas. You know, I mean, the most important thing is to, to really understand kind of 
what drives healthy metrics in the, those various areas and, and, and then even try to continuously improve those. So, you know, first you've got your pipeline. That's kind of all the activity and potential opportunities, you know, you might have with, with prospects or clients. This is kind of, you know, what we talked about early, earlier when you're really trying to kind of identify and qualify opportunities, create awareness with value propositions and differentiators and, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? And then you, you, from there, you, you progress into what I call a bookings forecast. And that's pretty important, too, because for a lot of us, you know, we're, we have limited resources. So, you know, the opportunity cost for, for chasing the wrong business is very, very high. Right. Because it takes key resources and, and a team to to win any deal of, of any significance. And, and and also the bookings forecast is important, too, because that's how you plan for for your resource needs in the future. So you got to really have a, a tight grasp on on kind of what you're forecasting, because it's not necessarily you're not necessarily, record, you know, just forecasting revenue, you're forecasting resources at that stage. And then once it turns into kind of bookings or backlog, you know, I mean, everybody typically at that stage, they, they want to high five and say, ah, congrats, we won, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but that's, Mark, that's just a signed piece of paper. It's, it's not revenue at all, right? You know, nor does it even really guarantee it. So not until your team does the work and gets paid, it, it, you know, is, is that revenue. So I would also recommend kind of, you know, everybody tends to think marketing and sales and, and revenue generation, but sales to service transitions are, are really important, right? Setting your, your delivery team up and your service team up for success is, is absolutely critical. And then, then you get into kind of all the fun accounting stuff, right? So build revenue and all that good stuff and, and measuring, making sure that, you know, from the time you invoice a customer to, you know, when you get paid and when, when it turns into actual revenue, you know, you're, you're measuring, you have a healthy DSO, you know, I mean, the average of that's 43 days. So, you know, if you think about 43 days just between build revenue and actual revenue and then kind of what it takes your, your team to, to, to basically start working against that backlog or those bookings, right? And then, you know, the sales cycle and the bookings forecast or even, you know, what it takes to, to, to get people into the pipeline in the first place, that's a lot of time, right? So, so I think really that's, that's the key is really just be cognizant of the time and, and kind of how, how revenue works in our world. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. One of the things you mentioned there was around the opportunity cost of working with a potential opportunity that you sense is not going to land, but you're investing in it. How do you know when to pull the pin and walk away from a deal? Because even though it might be sensational to win it, there's, there's signs that it's not going to happen early on. Let's say what I used to call column fodder. You're in column two and column three of their preferred list of suppliers, and they need to get three, you know, let's say prices ultimately. How do you kind of, what do you look for that gives those signs that, hey, this is not yours to win really? There's a lot of signs. First and foremost, I mean, if you're getting an RFP and you aren't a part of writing that RFP or you don't have a relationship, with the individuals who are putting that, that RFP out, I'd say, don't even respond. It's a waste of time. You know, that that's uh, someone else is already there driving that discussion. Right. I think, I think just in, in conversations and the question, sometimes just ask, you know, I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll even tell you, I think it also goes back to, to that ideal customer profile, that segmentation. Right. And then, and then, you know, 
do they fit with kind of who we want to work with? I would also say, you know, culture even plays into that a little bit, right? Personality of, of the organization and who you want to work for with, you know, on that front is is pretty critical as as well. And and really, you know, again, the other thing too that you've you've really got to act. I mean, I kind of start with with this: Can I make the customer successful, right? Based on what they're asking me to go do or what I think needs to be done, right? And then after I I kind of make that decision or that determination, then I figure out how do I make money doing that? How does the company make money? And then from there, you know, how do I make that team successful or how do I, how do I you know, pay that team or, or incent that team to do good work there? So I kind of follow that, that pattern, if you will. Yeah. Okay. So how do you, do you have any secret sauce or kind of skills that you've developed over time that can ultimately lead to a touchdown with a new customer coming board? Oh, you know, I think it's just <laughs> pattern recognition, right? Just, uh, you know, experience doing it for, for so long. I think that's, that's kind of what it takes. I think there's so many, there's so many variables in our business. It's not like we're selling widgets or products, uh, you know, and it's here it is, and this is what it is. So, I mean, I think you really just got to engage and, and really, you know, be mature enough to, to just, tell a potential prospect or customer that you're not a good fit. You know, just this week, you know, we had the same thing that happened to us. You know, we actually, you know, recommended a couple of our competitors because we just weren't a good fit for this customer. So at any rate, that's, that's really, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's no, there's no secret sauce, man. I, I wish I, I wish I had uh, you know, something special for you that, that made it easy for everybody to sell more stuff, but that just doesn't exist. No, I don't think it's an easy way. I like I like what you said there about pattern recognition. It is patterns, and they generally repeat themselves, and so it's identifiable, you know. So I think that's a, that's a that's a good answer. Tell me about partnering with Microsoft. What are the key advantages, disadvantages? How heavily do you partner with them? How much do they play a role in your practice now, or or kind of what you've experienced with engagements with them in the past? And there's no need to kind of <laughs> sugarcoat anything or anything like that, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, so so I've been working with Microsoft for a long time. So I, I, I've seen, you know, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. If if you're, I mean, first and foremost, if you're a Microsoft partner, then you really have no choice. It, it's more about how you do it and, and how much time you spend on it, right? So I would say, you know, first, the key is to actually empathize with them, right? It, it all boils down to people in the end. And if you can add value to those people based on their goals and their aspirations, then typically they'll reward you for that. Microsoft's no different. And, and you know, in those Microsoft folks, specifically those in the sales roles, they're typically driven by a couple different things, right? They're, they want to add new customers and they want more consumption of their technology. So if you can figure out a way to do that, then, then you know they'll reward you for that. And again, there's there's no secret handshake or anything else. The customer is going to make the rules for the decision. So I think that's the other thing that people kind of get you know wrapped around the axle around. They think Microsoft dictates these things. It's actually the customer, right? Microsoft doesn't have any more power over the customer than you do. So if you're in a position to help the customer be successful with the technology and everyone involved understands that, then you're good. Right. And, and you're usually bulletproof at that point to any shenanigans as, <laughs> that Microsoft would want to pull in terms of you know, getting another partner in there as long as you have trust and credibility with that customer. So and then I would also say, too, if Microsoft doesn't know you're there, 
or that that trust exists and you're not communicating effectively with them, then don't blame them for trying to insert another partner or getting in your way, right? They're just trying to do their job. So, you know, partnerships need to be mutually beneficial. You don't need Microsoft to survive, you know, and, and they sure as hell don't need you. <laughs> so, so just add val- as much value to that partnership as possible. That doesn't mean doing whatever they say. That can be dangerous for you and even for them. And then also, you know, if you can build that healthy relationship with them, then, then you'll get opportunities to do things in your business that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Yeah. But like, isn't right now the most premium time to be a Microsoft partner? They're the highest valued company in the world. You know, everybody that said they were out for the count five years ago, the whole thing's turned around. Sachi has made such a massive transformation. They're driving phenomenal revenues. And because we know so much of their revenues are driven by partner implementation, that means a lot of partners are doing a heck of a well at the moment, you know, of, of backing this wonderful technology and company. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Like I said earlier, I mean, that's that's why I'm back. Yeah. Nice, nice. Tell me about Salesforce.com. Have you competed against them? And when competing against them, if you have, how is it different than if you like going after a deal where, there, where another Microsoft partner is involved? So if you like, it's a frenemy as opposed to the legit enemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so... Oh man, I could write a book on competing with my or with Salesforce. Uh, they're, you know, first and foremost, I've really enjoyed competing with them over the years. I mean, that, arguably, they're one of the best B two B marketing and sales organizations to ever exist. So, if if you're looking to benchmark your skills and and kind of that that arena against anyone, then they're about as good as it gets. So, although I would say this, you know, because of their size and scale right now, they're starting to get watered down in areas, but they're still a very formidable marketing and sales machine. So. You know, I would say a lot of people make mistakes when when going up against them. You know, for example, a lot of people, including Microsoft, they try to emulate them when competing against them. And and that kind of makes sense in a way because they're really good at sales. So why not try to mimic their sales motions? (laughs) But that that also happens to be the quickest way to lose against them, right? Trying to beat them at the game they play so well, not going to happen, right? So, I mean, if, if you're competing against them, you know, I've always found it really good to first understand who you're really up against and where they're at in the opportunity. You know, after a couple of conversations, you should be able to to see who their coaches and champions are within that organization. If the pursuit's being led by one of their partners and it's not an enterprise account, then often, believe it or not, Salesforce isn't in there yet. Many of their partners don't like to get them involved until towards the very end of the opportunity. It's because they can be overly aggressive in the sales process. Right. So, but, you know, I would say this more than likely Salesforce is there and they're probably the ones that cultivated the opportunity in the first place. So, so after you have that, that insight mark into what they're doing and where they're positioned, then, then you need to do something that's, that's pretty counterintuitive to what most salespeople learn to go do. You have to slow things down, right? That helps you out in a number of ways. It typically frustrates the hell out of them, which is always a good thing. And then they tend to get sloppy when things aren't moving as fast as they would like or, or on plan as they would like. They do stupid things like call above their, their people, call directly into the CEO, try to be start being a little bit more aggressive than uh, kind of unnaturally aggressive, if you will. You know, I'd say after, after that, after slowing it down, you, you need to do some other unnatural things like commoditizing the CRM technology, right? Especially the traditional stuff. 
you know, and I, I know that doesn't feel right either, but the simple fact of the matter is there's probably more than likely five different CRM systems that'll meet the requirements of your prospect, <laughs> you know, especially if you're just talking about SFA. So don't make it, you know, obviously sell on value. Don't make it a kind of a discount to win type of thing, but, but that's important. I think also Salesforce overemphasizes the technology as being kind of the key to driving that prospect's success, you know, so and, and the solution to all of the prospect's problems. So if, if you start to align yourself with some really smart people in that account that know that that's simply not the case, that you simply just don't buy technology and it solves all your problems. If you help them understand that it's, it's about how it gets implemented correctly, that will, will ultimately lead to their success. Unless it's an enterprise account, Salesforce is telling them that it's easy and they don't, they don't like to talk about things outside the realm of control, like process and people and data and, and things like that. So so I would just say, do your best to, to make it a very logical, value-based decision. Stress the power of the platform, or, or kind of what we were talking about earlier, stress the power of the power platform. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, make sure that those Salesforce coaches and champions are kind of neutralized by kind of understanding that Microsoft can do everything they can do for them, right? And, and, and they can do it at a better value. And when you, so you start bringing in the rest of the Microsoft stack, it's often a much more complete solution. Mm. If uh, let's say the shop, as in sorry, let's say the business that you're targeting is a, not predominantly a Microsoft shop, would you kind of raise that as a red flag? So they're talking to, to SFDC already. They're not a Microsoft shop. Would that be enough for you to go? You know, and let's say you didn't have necessarily a compelling relationship that was already in place. Would that be red flag enough for you to walk? Oh, I mean, I would actually run away from that as fast as possible because, I mean, you know, I mean, first and foremost, you're starting to fight a, a battle that you can't win, and, and and they're flipping the same. You know, what I just talked about, they're they're probably more than likely doing the same thing to you, right? So, you know, they've got you know applications sitting on Amazon, and, and they're running Google Apps in the background, and and how are you going to tell your story in terms of how D three sixty five fits into all of that? Right. And, and they're using, you know, maybe Tableau for analytics, you know, at, at that stage, you're really trying to convince them to, to completely change, you know, their all of their technology. Yeah. So right. So right. So I like there, though, that that kind of move around slowing the sales process down because it frustrates them. Is there, Do you have any anything else like that's quite a, a smart, tactful thing? And I've definitely seen that work. Anything else? You know, again, you know, I think you just got to kind of make a case like a, like a good attorney makes a case. Right. So because they're going to be embedded you know, before you get there, typically with with some key folks. And, and, and more than likely, that's going to be someone on the business. And unfortunately for a lot of Microsoft partners and Microsoft, for that matter, they get stuck in IT and do not know how to have the same type of business conversation that that Salesforce does. Right. So, so you've got to, you know, at that stage, you've got to kind of just make it a, a very logical case, right. And, and make sure that that, that VP of sales that wants the same technology that their buddy uses understands that you can absolutely do everything that Salesforce can do. You can do it at a better value and make sure that, that if, if you get beat, it's, it's that, that VP of sales going back to their peers, that, you know, IT leader, their CEO, their COO and saying, you know, I want this because I just want it. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's kind of what you got to do. Just make that case. 
What's the biggest risk you've taken within business and has it paid off or are you still learning from it? <laughs> mm, good question. So, so I would say the biggest risk that I've, I've taken is, you know, I, I left, you know, a very comfortable W2 world with a, with a great company full of great people. I also have two small kids and my wife started her own business as well. So I'm, I'm not necessarily sure if, if it has or, or even if it will pay off. But, but right now, I'm having fun and, and I can assure you nobody over this Blue House is starving, Mark. So we're in good shape there. So, you know, so, so I'm, I'm still learning, you know, I, I think. And, and hopefully even if, if all these risks pay off, um, then, you know, I'll still continue to be learning. But, but yeah, I, I think it's... It's not about the payoff. It's kind of more about the journey, if you will. Nice. If there's, is there anything else you want to add before we get on to some quick fire questions? Uh, you know, I think that's that's pretty much it, unless you have any any additional questions. No, that's that's great. So let, let's talk about some quick fire ones. So first of all, over your career, you've been to a lot of Microsoft conferences. You know, they've gone under different names, things like that. Which one has, in your experience, for you personally, driven the highest value? Or which kind of one would you go, if this conference is on in 2019, I'm attending it. So important that I'm there. What's that one one? Yeah. So, you know, I think back in the day, it was always about convergence, right? <laughs> you know, that that was the event, right? And I think that's that's been split up into a bunch of different events. And and based on kind of you know what I've seen so far, you know, I would say it's it's the Microsoft Business Applications event. You know, I I, I was kind of surprised how well that went over, especially with how quickly it was put together by Microsoft. So so that was good. And then you know I'd say CRMUG. You know, that's a really good event. And and has you know ever since kind of the absence of convergence has, has really kind of become one of the main gathering places for you know people in that that field so so i'd say those are the two i mean i i attended ignite and, and did some some things there but you know that's how oh, it's just you know it's too much i mean i felt like i was at rsa or large security conference when i was there you know so so anyways it's yeah i would say it's business applications summit or whatever they're calling that and then crmug awesome what's the bead the biggest highlight across your entire career for you it might be a war story. It might be, uh, you know, what's that, that one that you use it as a lesson to others type thing or use it as your, you know, backslapping uh, opportunity every now and again? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've had a lot, of, a lot of good wins. You know, I think my favorite wins are the ones that, that people told me that we couldn't get done or we couldn't do. I can't name names on, on some of these customers, but, you know, all of these were were very large implementations, you know, so 2,000 plus users of, of, of Microsoft Dynamics Serum. One of them, you know, I said, I don't know if you remember a guy by the name of Eddie Marshall. He was a GM at Microsoft. I, I sat down in front of him one day and, and he, he told me unequivocally that this this deal I was working on was was not for me and, and that, you know, someone else was primed to go get it and, and, and that I couldn't close it and, and etc. And he even said that in front of my leadership team too. And, and I just politely disagreed with them. I said, we're a perfect fit for these folks. And, you know, I know that, that the other partners have been working on this for, for a long period of time, but we're a better fit to make them successful. And we went, went out and got that deal done. Uh, I call it kind of the honey badger <laughs> deals, right? The, the deals that you just, you just want it more. So you just go get it. Those, <laughs> nice. are, those, those are the most fun. The other one too, you know, a company, 
that was getting ready to go through chapter seven. That That's bankruptcy, right? That's bankruptcy. Yep. yep that's bankruptcy in the States. Not all our listeners are in, in the U.S. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, so at any rate, this, this organization, you know, it's, uh, it's, getting ready to become almost insolvent and we're trying to sell, you know, a thousand plus user, you know, deal inside of there. And people are telling us that, no, that couldn't happen. And, and really we thought we disagreed. We thought, you know, their situation meant that, you know, they needed us more. So we ended up kind of finding an individual, a a management consultant, a partner at a, you know, a very well-known management consulting company and just sat down with him and just, talk to him about it. And he said, yeah, you're absolutely correct. You know, I mean, uh, these people don't even know who their customers are, <laughs> you know, let alone where their revenue is coming from. And, and you know, it's going to be very, very difficult for these folks to to change things or get out of the situation scenario without that insight. So we went back to the CEO and set up a direct line of communication between us and, and Microsoft and, and we, we, we got it done. Nice. Nice. So good. What's the best purchase you've made under $100? My Arcturic's backpack. I got that one on sale for half off, and, and that thing has taken a beating and is, is you know, <laughs> very well-traveled. Hang on. What was, what was the brand name of it? Arcturix. It's a, it's a brand. I don't know if it's, it's outside the state. How do you spell it? A-R-C-T-E-R-Y-X. And, you know, I get a lot of my climbing gear there, too, and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, it's just – it's probably my favorite brand so so i yeah i love it wicked who would you recommend as a podcast guest for the future i got a few different names man that could share some serious wisdom with you so here are a few people that could be great so mike gillis over at dxc group i think i already introduced him to you yeah i think we were having a drink at crmug when he popped by that's right yeah super solid tons of wisdom jesse lascalzo over at kpmg us also very solid what was his last name lascalzo I'll, I'll give you their contact information if you want. Jim Steger and Christy Reed, formerly Sonoma Partners, now E and Y. They they'd both be fabulous. I can't get Jim on the uh, on the call because of their they're pretty tied up with being part of a big crowd now that have certain rules in place. We've had lots of chats about it. So maybe if you can't get Jim on, maybe maybe Christy or Brandon, those folks. I mean, they've got a great team over there. So so. They would be good. Grant McLarnan, uh, you know, formerly ADX and Adoxio, now KPMG Canada, very very solid. Gary Peterson at, over at Hitachi. I would say, you know, maybe other folks that I would talk to: Steve Kane and Steve Thompson from Power Objects. Also, you know, you know who else would be good? Scott Millwood, a formerly customer effective in Hitachi. I don't know where he's at right now, but I'm willing to bet he's working on something related to dynamics. Nice, nice. I'll get you to uh, do an intro via um, LinkedIn to those people. That'd be grand. Nick, it's been great to have you on the show. Before you go, if people want to kind of follow what you're up to online, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can certainly go to paritagroup.com or just reach out to me, Nick, at paritagroup.com. You've been listening to the Dynamics 365 Practice Show on the Microsoft Business Application Podcast. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on any great podcast player. Your host was Business Application MVP Mark Smith, otherwise known as the NZ365 Guy. For all the show notes or to discuss anything covered on the show, please go to nz365guy.com forward slash 70. I'll see you on the next episode.